Hello, I'm Joanna Lumley. I'm in my garden in London, and I'm walking down the garden path to the music room. In there, I'll find my husband, the composer and conductor, Stephen Barlow. Now, we've been married almost 40 years, and I think, however long you've been with someone, you have questions that you'd like to ask your partner. So this podcast is my chance to ask Stephen the questions I've always wanted to ask him about one of his and my greatest passions, classical music. Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. Hello, Maestro. Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. And Maestro, today I just want to talk, I want you to talk rather. I shall remain quiet as a mouse crouching by a sideboard with a piece of cheese on the top of it. I want to talk to you about the organ because when I met you, I knew you as an organist. Rather, the first time I set eyes on you, you were sitting at the organ banging about... Um, in Dawlish Parish Church. In Dawlish Parish Church. We quite often have seen, usually the back view of an organist, with this colossal... It's more than an instrument. It's kind of a, a sort of building around him. And he's usually got his back to the church or the cathedral, and he has a mirror so that he can see what's happening on the ground, as it were, because they're practically always aloft, aren't they? The organ loft, they're up. Yeah, they? because the pipes are uh, way up in Triforia or in some organ case a fair distance away. <laughs> Will of... you tell me when at school you first played the organ? Was it when you were at the choir school when you were a little boy or was it when you'd gone to King's School from 13 years old and onwards that you first played the organ? And would it have been the Canterbury Cathedral organ? Oh, yeah. I think every chorister, you fall in love with the organ because it doesn't matter how old you are. The first time you go and sing in the choir as a probationer or, and you hear this massive, massive instrument, sometimes incredibly loud and overpowering and sometimes fabulously soft. You fall in love with it and all the colours, you know, because in the Psalms the organist can improvise little descants and different colours for each verse. Like in Psalm 18, which of course is sung to an Anglican chant, and people really don't know these kind of things, but it was written by the very, very able Henry Monk. So it's very difficult for any chorister to say, organ, what organ? It's a huge part of your life. And of course, with Alan Wicks and some of the brilliant assistant organists he had there, Alan Wicks was a phenomenally inspired organist. He loved colour and he liked the dramatic effect organs can produce. But he wouldn't let anybody, wouldn't let any of us start organ lessons until we'd finished at the choir school. So I saw it, I turned pages for various recording sessions. You see, the keyboard is, is four keyboards. We call them manuals, all with different sounds on them. Now you are a young organist, you're walking up and now you're sitting down on the bench. Is it called a bench? 
Yes, the yeah. organ bench. Yes. Organ bench, yes. good, we yes. got that right. Yes. So tell me what's ahead of you. What are you looking at? This is the thing which I think Mozart called the king of instruments. Didn't it he? was he who coined the phrase, the king of instruments. I think principally because it produces numerous different sounds, ranging from soft, fluty sounds to interesting solo sounds like oboe and corno di bassetto. So we're sitting on the bench now. Yes, Paint so you've got four manuals in front of you. And the manuals are four little keyboards, not not as long as a piano keyboard. No, they're, they're not as big as a piano keyboard. It stretches from the two octaves beneath middle C. Oh, sorry, that was an E. And that was a D. He's li- <laughs> Listener, he's <laughs> behaving very randomly blind. at the moment. It's not like him usually. <laughs> OK, are you ready now? Yes, we are. So that's the bottom note on an organ mm. manual keyboard. Mm. And that's two octaves beneath mm. middle C. And then it goes up to a G, which is two and a half octaves above. Are the four manuals the same? Yes, they will be, but they're layered. So the first manual, you'll be playing slightly low. The second manual is slightly higher and further away. And the third, even higher away. And the top manual, your hand will be outstretched to play it. But they all play the same notes. So why do you have so many? So many manuals? Yes. Because there will be different types of sounds and functions on each keyboard. You depress a key on the manual... How does that note come out? You, you've got to pull a stop. So with no, no stops pulled out, you've got a mute keyboard. Okay. So you've got to pull a stop to make a sound. How do you know which stop to pull out? Ah, well, here's the thing. You just get to know what... Oh, this is helpful. <laughs> Let's look at it this way. A basic organ, one manual, one keyboard, small church organ. Yeah. If it's a one manual, then it will just have one rank of stops, rank. It'll have a collection of stops to the right, and you pull those out to bring the sound on. Now, what you will have on that is a basic eight foot, and eight foot is the length to produce middle C sounding as middle C. So you press that key, and you will get that sound. You will also have, necessarily, a four foot stop, half the length, Mm -hmm. so when you put that note down, that will play an octave above. Then you have a twelfth, which is... and a two-foot, which is eight-foot, four-foot, two-foot, half the length of the four-foot, and that plays two octaves above middle C. Now, that's the basis. You might have a 16-foot basic sound... Either a flute or a diapason. Let's go there. It's all on Wikipedia. Different sounds. You might have a 16-foot, and the 16-foot, twice the length of the 8-foot, plays an octave underneath. So if you pull all those stops out, we've talked about 16, 8, 4, and 12th, and 2, and you get all of that sound through pressing one key, middle C, with those stops. You see what I'm yeah. you see what I mean? So if you just play the scale in C Okay. Would you explain to me the pedals? How many pedals have you got under there? Well that range <laughs> goes from low C up to 
the F above middle C. You can't go any further because you can't open your hips wide enough to... When you play the V-door toccata... What do you mean, play on the pedals? What does With the your pedals, feet. Yes, but what do they strike a note? What yes, they, yes, yes. It's a, oh, well, just... Yes, it's good, a keyboard, good. but for feet. Ah. Oh. Exactly the same. <laughs> exactly the same as a manual. So you can't have more than those notes on the pedal board because you cannot do the splits wide enough to possibly play high notes and soft notes. And, and if you consider that you are having to play a lot of notes at the top of the pedal board, you have to swivel your body around. So you could be playing the manuals in, with your hands outstretched to your left while you're playing at the top right on the pedal board. So you have to have an organ bench that's very slidey. 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 And you have to have little quiet feet, little shoes, not too big, clumpy shoes. Well, you've got to have I, dancing master I shoes. I used to really, think about you? that a little bit. But organists, whenever you go into an organ loft in a cathedral, you'll probably see a couple of pairs of shoes around. Yeah. Because the gaps between the pedals... Very narrow. And if you think about it, organists, when they learn the pedal board, they learn not to look and just feel your way up the pedal board. So you slip your foot in between the gaps in the pedals so that you can orientate yourself where you are. Organ pipes, the very word pipe means air is blown into it. Where does the air come from? Well, the first organs, you can read all about this on Wikipedia. It's the second century. And they were hydraulic. Now, I'm not going to go into any of this, but principally it was 14th, 15th century when air was pushed through a pipe and a pipe is exactly what, <laughs> what a pipe is, like a drain pipe, yeah. but with a hole at the top. It's rather like releasing air through a recorder. And if you block all the holes and release one, then you produce a note and close that down. And you, so it's air being pushed through the pipe. Now, the key is connected to a mechanism that opens that pipe. And releases air into it. And in those village churches we talk about, there would be somebody who would pump the organ. That's right, the bellows. Is that the bellows? Is that rather like, for instance, one of those complicated instruments, the bagpipes, where you've got to blow into the bag to keep the bag extended, and then by squeezing the bag, it gives you the air for you to blow on the pipe and make the tune. Is that right? So the blowing is not to do with the playing; it's to do with the Providing it's keeping the air. air pressure. It's keeping the air pressure. Yes. That's the same idea, is it, behind yes, the organ? Yes, absolutely. So in modern-day organs, all of that is mechanical. You have so, hu- so huge, the huge Albert Hall and Canterbury Cathedral It's organ. got an enormous blower. And, that, and that's not done by tiny boys puffing up and down no, in no, their no, no, tiny no, vests? No, no, no. A further development was what are called tracker organs, whereby the key is connected to a wooden mechanism that has lots of links and is linked directly to a particular pipe. Now, bear in mind that if that is a physical connection, the more pipes you are using, the more stops you are using, different ranks of pipes, the key needs pressing down harder and harder and harder. So tracker organs, the bigger they get, are more and more difficult to play. Modern organs have pneumatic-assisted keyboards, which means that they're just very light with a little touch, and so you can have as many stops as you like. 
and it's all electronically connected. This seems a really colossal jump from a talented boy playing a piano suddenly to go into what looks like flying a 747 with a vast kind of array of things. What's the first thing you do when you get up the organ loft as a beginner? Hmm. What does your organ teacher tell you? The first things we learn to play are pieces like Bach's short preludes and fugues, like the one in C major, which is when you begin to learn pedaling, i.e. using the ball and heel of both feet on the pedal board. That sounds so difficult. Heel toe, heel toe, heel toe, heel toe, heel toe. And you have symbols for heel and toe, a V and an O. What's a that symbol, mean? What, What's well, the it, V? Well, well, <laughs> heel toe is described by V-O. Look at it on Wikipedia. No, no, she, no, what do you mean? No, what do you mean? No, Does it no, mean versus no, and opposite? No, look, 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 you, you have two feet. You have two feet. Yes. And you can play with your toes on both feet and your heels. Yes, I get that. I just didn't know why I used the symbols V and O. I've no idea. Okay, okay. That's all I wanted to know. So that's the first thing you learn. But the important thing about an organ, and you can hear this in the development of the music, is that you can experiment with colours. It's called registration. So you can link certain colours together and it gets really interesting when you have pipes that don't play the same note, but a note in the chord. So you can have a tierce or a larigo or a mixture, which is several notes. So you can play a melody. Now, when you play a chord, if you played played that, then you would have... Can you hear this very soft sound up here? Yes. So you have that sound just very faintly, and it gives it a wonderful colour. So that's the excitement. And I used to spend far too much time, Alan Wicks would probably say, experimenting with the organ to see what it really could do. Tell me about the names of the organ stops. I remember one particularly I adored, which was Vox Humana, the human voice. Ah. What are the names on the stops? And what are the ones you use most often? All well, hymns require you well, to Well, the foundation stops, which is eight foot, four foot, 16 foot, two foot diapasons or flutes. That's the basis. But if you have a melody in a Bach chorale prelude, for example, we can play an example. O Mensch Bewein. You would play the melody on a separate manual. You could play it on a nazard, or you could use a clarinet stop or an oboe stop. So it would have an instrumental colour. And this is really the point. Organ music really 
began with Svelink in Holland and Frescobaldi in Italy. Their music demonstrates the beauty of voicing in an orchestra, in, in, in a, on an organ. There you are, you see, that's my weakness. I always saw the organ as an orchestra. But in the early days, pieces were written to show the beauty of an organ's voicing, the colours, the craftsman's colours. We hear this in Svelings, hauntingly beautiful psalm, Mein Hüter und mein Hirt. And then Bach, of course, spread the sound of the organ into, you know, the famous. We simply must play Bach's Toccata in D minor. this point, he does this, start on the pedal. Which really stretches the capacity of the organ to bear it because you've got so many notes and you're playing full organ, so all the stops are out, and it really tested the organs in those days to see which were the better built. We'd love to hear from you, our lovely listeners. So if you've got questions, comments or suggestions, please get in touch on hello at joannaandthemaestro.com. Thank you. Do you get to know where the stops are, rather like a touch typist or us playing or us typing on our laptops where we become quite swift? And so you don't have to look, God, where's the oboe stop? You don't have to do that. No, you might Because your hands just flick. You're flicking them in and out, aren't you? I've seen that happening. Yes, yes, yes. But over the course of time, and perhaps beginning with Mendelssohn, who wrote some wonderful organ sonatas, people don't really know these so well. We should play some of them. They're marvellous pieces. Just take his fourth sonata in B-flat major, glorious piece, which stretched the capacity of the organs at the time. Mendelssohn actually refused to perform his organ sonatas at the International Birmingham Music Festival. Why? Basically, because England's organs were substandard <gasps> in comparison to those on the continent. <laughs> After Bach's time, there really wasn't that much interest in the organ as a recital or a concert instrument or, or, or a church instrument either, really. So Mendelssohn, the early 19th century, he began to show, and, and then Rheinberger, wonderful composer for the organ, they began to show 
how listening to the organ could be like listening to a kaleidoscope of orchestral sound. In which of Reinberger's sonatas can we hear this kaleidoscope of orchestral sound, Stevie? Well, in any one of them, to be frank. But let's try his seventh sonata, if you don't believe me. I always believe you. Very flashy passages and very lyrical passages from very soft. Now, you asked about the Vox Humana, because on, on a really great organ, there'll be two stops which combine to produce a string sound. And there's a very good example of that on a recording we did when I was a chorister of Franck Martin's Notre Père, Lord's Prayer. We'll play a bit of that, but it goes like this. On the organ, if you play that on the strings, you have these two different stops, and they are very slightly tuned, tiny bit sharp or a tiny bit flat. But when they blend, you get a wonderful, stringy, gorgeous, romantic sound of it. Do they go out of tune like a piano? Oh, yes, yes, yes. It's fascinating being in a cathedral when you hear an organ tuner at work. I mean, I've no idea how they do it, but it's absolutely precision stuff. And you have to voice something so that it sounds equal. Each note is a separate pipe. So all the pipes have to be fanatically, precisely the same, you know, the right dimension and the right quality of materials. And look, they're organ geeks. <laughs> you're, I know you're not I one of those. Not. No, 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 I absolutely love everything they do. At one stage, you were the, may still be, the youngest ever fellow. No, no, I wasn't. No, there's quite a few of us when I was 16. Well, that's quite a thing, isn't it? Yeah. A fellow of the Royal College of Organists? Yeah, it was a bit, a bit of a cheeky exam. They asked you to write a fugue. I don't think I'd been ever taught how to write a fugue. Did you write one, Barlow? Yes. And it was okay, wasn't it? Well, apparently. <laughs> Listen, when you started off, I mean, the very word organ, is there much tittering and much sort of oh, stifling of look, mirth? Look, you remember perfectly well Sinclair, who was responsible for our first ever meeting. Mm. Sinclair Armitage, I name and shame him. Alan Wicks, when I was 13, he presented me with my first volume of Bach organ music. And I must have left it in the study at some point. And on the title page, when it said Bach's organ works, Sinclair had put in pencil, so does mine. <laughs> oh, the, you know, the, the thing is, to be an organist, and I love organs and I love playing them. To be, <laughs> to be honest, you do spend a lot of time on your own, stuck away in an organ loft. 
But we've um, been to weddings and we've been invited as a couple and you've been asked to play the organ. So I sit like a widow on my own, a baton widow. I usually am when I'm at concerts and things because you're conducting, but this is an organ widow sitting on my own while you're somewhere quite different, looking in your little mirror to see whether the bride has reached the, the steps of the altar or, or the husband-to-be or whatever it is and looking at how it's all going to work behind you. It's a lonely profession, isn't it? Yeah, and quite often yeah. you've got to play till the audience, the congregation, has flooded out. Some sit behind and listen. And I love that when you play a piece at the end. They applaud now. And they applaud. Well, I know, because they used to. everything. They applaud no, and kiss. No, you, I, I used to play a piece when I was at Cambridge after a service. And I'd shut the organ down, go down, lock the door after me, and the chapel was empty. Everybody left before I'd stopped playing. The other thing about being an organist is that you do feel so powerful. And it's no wonder, really, that um, people like Mahler, Mahler wrote for organ, the beginning of his Symphony of a Thousand, is a huge organ chord. It's amazing. And Strauss, of course, used the organ. People tend to forget this, but at the beginning of Zarathustra, also Sprach, you know, the... There's a huge organ in that. And Strauss, to show that it's there, at the end of that enormous opening, the orchestra stops and the organ holds on for another two beats. It's sensational stuff. And Saint-Saëns, of course, wrote an organ symphony. That's beautiful. Yes, but the overpowering bit in that mm. is towards the end, mm. when he's, he's just preparing us for a huge coda and we don't quite know which one it is, the organ suddenly blazes away with that fanfare that everyone kind of knows. your thoughts about Olivier Messiaen? I love him because you introduced me to him. Do you really love him? I do. Because Sinclair, Sinclair Armitage's family, his father always accused me of doing all this modern stuff. He didn't have any time. He, he always said, I've, really, really, I haven't got time for all your ruddy poulonk. <laughs> and Sinclair says it to me to this day. We've got to say that Tony Armitage, the one you're talking of, who's yes. now long gone, did love music a great deal. He was just a traditionalist, I would have said. Yes, but, but the whole point is that the organ lives on in this century. So many composers write wonderful music for it, and, and Messiaen in particular, with that wonderful French sound of organs which bite. All French organs, the big ones, have a bite 
a, a kind of a flashy nip that, that English organs generally don't have. So to play us out, would you like to have Messiaen or Saint-Saëns? We You've want the nip, don't you? Saint-Saëns, yes, you want that flashy nip, don't you? Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I want to hear Olivier Messiaen playing some of his own organ music and probably transport de joie, transports of joy. been listening to Joanna and the Maestro, a cup and nozzle burning bright productions and Bauer media show. It's presented by me, Joanna Lumley, and my husband, Stephen Barlow. Our executive producers are Matt Everett, Graham Hodge, and Clive Tullow. The show is produced and edited by Hunter Charlton and Ben Tullow, and mix and mastering is by David Bloor. Our head of production is Rebecca Mills, our production manager is Sarah Anderson, and our production coordinator is Maxim Taylor. All music for the intros is supplied courtesy of Naxos Music UK. In this episode, you heard the following music. Psalm 18, sung to Anglican chant. Performed by the Canterbury Cathedral Choir, directed by Alan Wicks and Gwilym Isaac. The record label was Rondo Records. Eight short preludes and fugues. Prelude and fugue in C. BWV 553. Written by Johann Sebastian Bach and performed by Hans Fagius. The record label was BIS. Orgel Bookline. Mensch Bewein Dein Sund Gross. By Johann Sebastian Bach. Performed by Marie Claire Allen. The record label was Arato Disc SA. Psalm 23. Mein Hüter und Mein Hurt. By Jan Petersoon Svelink. Performed by Masaki Suzuki. The record label was B.I.S. Toccata and Fugue in D minor by Johann Sebastian Bach, performed by William McVicker. The record label was Sony Music Entertainment UK Limited. Organ Sonata Number no. 4 in B-flat major, Allegro Combrio, written by Felix Mendelssohn and performed by Stephen Tharp. The record label was Naxos. Son number no. seven in F, Opus one two seven, Allegro, by Joseph Gabriel Reinberger, performed by Wolfgang Rubsem. The record label was Naxos. Lord's Prayer by Frank Martin, performed by Andrew Lyle and the Canterbury Cathedral Choir. The publisher was Universal Edition London Limited, and the record label was Abbey Rhodes. Symphony number no. eight, part one. Hymnus Veni Creator Spiritus, Allegro Impetuoso Veni Creator Spiritus, by Gustav Mahler, performed by the Warsaw National Philharmonic Choir and the Warsaw National Philharmonic Orchestra. The record label was Naxos. 2001, A Space Odyssey, also Spracht Zarathustra, Opus 30, Einleitung, written by Richard Strauss and performed by the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Carl Davis. The record label was MAT Music Theme Licensing Limited. Symphony No. 3 in C minor, Opus 78, Organ Symphony, 
Maestoso Allegro Molto Allegro, written by Camille Sanson, performed by Slovak Harmonic Orchestra and Bistrik Rezuka. The record label was Suite 102. L'Ascension, Transports de Joie, written by Olivier Messiaen and performed by Jennifer Bate. The publisher was Chester Music and record label was Treasure Island. All music for the intro is supplied courtesy of Naxos Music UK. Mozart's Exultate Jubilate K165, performed by Pretty Coles, Camerata Casovia, and conducted by Johannes Wildner. Licensed courtesy of Naxos Music UK Limited.